0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello, everybody. My name is Reyes Bertolin. I'm your host today for the New Books Network. And with me, we have Professor Kelly Olson from the University of Western Ontario. Now it's known as Western University. And uh, Professor Olson is a specialist in Roman social history. She's interested in the areas of society and culture, especially in women, family, sexuality, clothing, and appearing. And today she is here to talk to us about um, one of her books. She has written uh, two books and edited three others, as well as uh, numerous articles on issues of clothing and appearance in the Roman world. Um, Her first book, was Dress and the Roman Woman, Self-Presentation and Society, that appeared in 2008 uh, by uh, Routledge. And um, here next book, which is the one that we are going to talk about today, is called Masculinity and Dress in Roman Antiquity, also published by Routledge in 2017. And she has just finished editing um, three books. Um, One of them is called uh, Dress and Religion in the Mediterranean Antiquity, that was published in 2021 by Bloomsbury Academic. And um, she has two forthcoming books, A Cultural History of Luxury, Volume One, and A Cultural History of Beauty. Um, also forthcoming, hopefully for this year, two thousand and twenty-two. And so, as you see, um, Doctor Olson is, um, and especially in issues like, yeah, beauty, dress, appearance, and and well, let's us start. Welcome, Kelly. Thank you very much.
2: Hi, Reis. Thank you so much for having me. It's so great to be here and to be talking to you.
1: Yeah, no, it's my pleasure. So why don't we start first with some general questions about how you got this interest in, in Roman clothing? What motivated you to study the clothing in ancient Rome?
0: Well,
2: um, this was my, my dissertation was on women's dress in the ancient world. And I guess it grew out of my own, my own interest in fashion. So I'd always been interested in clothing and fashion and dress, um, really of all periods. And in addition to my research on ancient dress, I also teach for our Department of Women's Studies classes on gender and fashion, which have nothing to do with antiquity. So we start at the medieval period and we go up until like 2022. So I have just this kind of all encompassing interest in fashion history and dress. And so back when I was a graduate student at Chicago in the early 90s, um, I went to my potential supervisor and I said, I want to write my dissertation on women's dress. And, you know, he, you know, this was Richard Saller and, you know, to, to, to um, give him all credit where credit is due. He said, yeah, sounds good. And then he paused and he said, is there going to be enough evidence? And I said, oh yeah, there's going to be enough evidence. <laughs> and so, so I was off. So really it, it sort of grew out of my longstanding love of fashion and
1: fashion history in all periods, really. Mm, wonderful, wonderful! It's it's great that you can combine your own interest with the study of of antiquity. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, it really is.
1: <laughs> yeah. So when we think about Roman clothing, um, it seems to be very codified, you no, know, by social rank, by age. I mean, is is that impression true? And why was it so important for the Romans to distinguish themselves? by their clothing Hmm.
2: yeah that's a really great question and it does seem at first glance like roman clothing is very codified and a lot of it is um however there are pieces of clothing which are genderless ageless and rankless so if you think of the tunic for instance which everybody wears in varying lengths, right? So if you're a woman, you wear a tunic to the ground, and if you're a if you're a centurion, you wear it sort of mid-thigh, or if you're a slave, you wear it mid-thigh. Um, and the tunic is just that, it, it sort of looks like a sleeveless dress, and everybody will know the tunic from um, Hollywood movies, I would assume. Um, so that's a great example of a, of a piece of clothing which really crosses all gender and um, rank categories. Um, Cloaks as well are another item, which everybody wears at all levels. Now, of course, there are ways in which to make um, pieces of clothing which cross lines of class and rank you know uh, uh, to to display status so if you have a cloak and you're a wealthy person you don't have a cloak which is made of sort of rough brown homespun you probably have a cloak of white linen with gold embroidery or purple stripes or what have you so there's ways to make them that those pieces of clothing uh, you know show your status and i I think the re- reason the Romans were so well, you know, I don't know. I saw this on your list of questions, and I've been thinking about it for days. I'm like, yeah, why were the Romans so concerned about showing their rank and their status through their dress? Um, I mean, I suppose you could say, which is kind of the easy way, out. you could say that it's human nature. So, you know, most Western cultures, um, I think, are kind of obsessed with their appearance and... Um, telling the story of who they are through their dress, right? Even today, I think, um, you know, our society as a whole is very much um, concerned with appearance and self presentation. Um, and the, the Romans were really no exception, I suppose. Um, the, the other thing we have to remember, I guess, is that the Romans were not a card carrying society. So there is no way for you to prove your status as a senator or an equestrian except through your dress. You don't have a little certificate that says, hi, I'm a senator or a little card or a driver's license or a passport or anything. Um, so it's really through your dress that that people know who you are, right? And Roman dress can say so many things about the wear. It, it can talk about your gender, your age, your rank, your status, your um, citizenship, your non-citizenship your status is slavery free. It just says so many things about you um, in a way that I guess modern dress really, really doesn't anymore. Um, so the Romans are quite conscious of their status because I think visualizing that status is one of the few ways that they're able to, you know, um, tell the story of who they are. And the, the real dividing line in Roman society um, is not gendered it's not a gender divide so the real dividing line between you know between various romans is not are you a male or are you a female it's are you a slave or are you a free person that's the huge dividing line um and so and the the um the problem is i suppose or the interesting thing is that because roman slavery is not racially grounded in the way that um you know, American Southern slavery is racially grounded. It, it often might must've been difficult to tell walking down the street who was a slave and who was a free citizen. If you're a free, poor citizen, you may not wear it. You may not own a toga. They're quite expensive and they're hard to care for and they're hot and you know, all the rest of it. Um, so you might just be wearing a tunic, just like your slave neighbor, for instance. Um, so I think in in many cases R- Romans who are who can differentiate themselves from slaves um, are very careful to do so in in sort of g- great detail so that's my very long-winded answer to why the Ro- Ro- Roman clothing is so codified
1: <laughs> yeah yeah no that's that's wonderful yeah I I never thought. In those terms of the Romans, yeah, of course, you think, you know, they had slaves, but but it's, yeah, I guess it would be hard to distinguish down the road who is who, no? Um, so, did the clothing make the man? Then, because I mean, your book is about masculinity and, and ideas of men, of manhood. Um,
2: yeah, I think it well, I think it does. I mean, as it as again, in many, in many Western cultures, um, clothing is intimately connected with masculinity, although clothing also has a kind of fraught relationship with masculinity. So, um, you know, just like today there um, in, in ancient Rome, there are certain kinds of things which men were not. Supposed to wear, or if they did wear them, then their masculinity was like kind of suspect. So men in antiquity are not supposed to wear color, right? They're they're the the rainbow portion of clothing was left to women. So women in ancient Rome are the ones that wear pink and yellow and um green and you know light gray and and other colors like that. And Roman males are supposed to wear. Undyed wool, so I guess in some cases that could be white. It could also be off-white or beige or brown or dark a dark color. Um, So it's interesting if you look at male the the male relationship to color and what ornament through the centuries. Um, you know, they're, they're in ancient times, they're really men are not supposed to dress colorfully. And that changes um, very slowly starting in the early modern period. And by the late 18th century, in Europe, certainly men are just as adorned with lace and silk and gold embroidery and pink and pale pastel colors as women are. And then in the um, first few decades of the 19th century, Um, comes what scholars call the great male sartorial renunciation, where men just decide apparently, collectively, that they're not going to wear color anymore. And so, you know, somber black and brown for men really begins around 1840 or 1850 or so. Um, And once again, the greater part of the rainbow is left to women. So we see a very similar um, thing happening in ancient Rome where men just don't wear color. The exceptions are purple, which is the status color par excellence, because it's so expensive to produce. So men can wear that in small amounts. You can't go around dressed entirely in purple because that, of course, makes you look like you want to be a monarch. And the Romans have a horror, at least until the empire, they have a they have a horror of the word king. So you don't want to do that. Um, and interestingly, the other color that men could wear and not be seen as effeminate was scarlet because that's also a very expensive color. It comes from, um, uh, w- well, uh, we would call it cochineal. So it's the the red that comes from the eggs of the insect, also very expensive to produce. So scarlet and purple are really the only two colors that men can wear um, in antiquity and still be thought to be males, right? So yellow especially is very much a female color the Roman bride had parts of her um, costume colored yellow. So her shoes are yellow. Her long veil is yellow. She has other yellow touches on her, um, on her clothing. And um, yellow is a female color. Um, It's, it's a bit of a chicken and egg situation. Um, But one scholar has put forward the supposition that maybe yellow was conceived of as this female color because, um, saffron, which is the herb from which the Romans get that brilliant yellow dye, is also um, a medicine in antiquity and is used to treat women's ills. So menstrual cramps and um, I think it's like bringing on a period. Those are treated with saffron, which also yields yellow. And so that might be an odd reason why the color yellow is so, you know, sort of so strongly associated with women in the ancient Roman mind. Um, so yeah, so clothes did make the man. Um, co- color definitely did not, but, but I suppose cl- clothing absolutely did. So yeah, they they are not supposed to wear color. Um, men in antiquity don't wear makeup um, usually. They, so they they envision like the Greeks a kind of extreme polarization of the sexes. So you know, everything that men are or do or look like women are the opposite. So there's, there's a little bit of overlap and, and I um, know that we'll eventually get around to talking about dandies and effeminacy. Um, but yeah, this sort of upstanding Roman male, it, you know, he, he's very much against color and ornament of any sort.
1: <laughs> well, like many men today, still, yes, no, they're right? like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's. <laughs> right. yeah. And so, what type of evidence do we have for actual garments? How do we know what they wore? So, yeah, where, and what type of clothes do they have? And. Yeah, if you can comment on that a bit. Yeah,
2: it's it's very hard being a historian of ancient clothing because historians of clothing in other cultures, like 18th century clothing, for instance, or Victorian clothing, can actually go into museums and look at physical pieces of clothing, right? And they can look at, um, you know, evidence of wear and, you know, they can detail how styles change by looking at actual garments themselves. And historians of ancient clothing don't have that, um, that luxury. So we are thrown back on descriptions of clothing in literature, which is problematic. Every author has his own agenda and may or may not be reflecting what is actually going on around him. He might instead be describing an ideal world rather than you know reflecting what's actually happening. And then the other type of evidence that we mostly have is art, and that's also problematic. Um, as I tell my students, art is not a snapshot of everyday life. It has its own agenda, and art always embellishes and omits and exaggerates for its own purposes. Um, we do have some records of ancient garments, like it's it, the the problem is textiles and leather are very archaeologically fugitive. so they don't they don't really. Um, stand up to the, the test of time, right? So there are a few sites like Vindolanda in Roman Britain, where there have been like literally 5,000 shoes pulled out of the ground. So that's, it's a really great site for for leather and shoes. Um, it's fantastic. Uh, and then Egypt is good for the preservation of textiles. But the problem is most of the textiles from Egypt um are so-called coptic textiles which are much later than the period i study. So if you study 5th century or 6th century or 7th century CE clothing then there are some examples from from Egypt. But unfortunately most roman clothing really just doesn't survive. So th- there sometimes there's like a scrap of clothing that survived at an archaeological site or um the you know the sole of a shoe or a needle, you know, these little tantalizing um, glimpses of the, of Roman um, sort of self presentation, but yeah, I'm afraid most of the evidence is literary evidence and then artistic representations
1: for sure. Is it en- enough to reconstruct? I, g- I guess it must be. You've written uh, the books about it. I mean, it, yeah, but... <laughs> I made like an entire
2: career on it, so I really hope so. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's just it's very problematic because again, um, even if it, it, even if I was a clothing historian in another, of another century, like 18th century, um, you know, even if, let's say for the sake of argument, there were no 18th century clothing, pieces of clothing left for me to look at, I would still have things like um, price lists and catalogs and women's diaries and women's letters and archival records of clothing and receipts for the sale of clothing and women talking about fashion in diaries or letters. And that kind of um, immediate historical source, that sort of archival source is missing from, from the ancient world. So, you know, really what we have from the ancient world, not only are, are is clothing in literature and art, but clothing in literature and art filtered through a particular gaze, right? So in the literature is obviously the male elite gaze. And to some extent in art, it's it's also an elite gaze because poor people can't afford to have marble statues made of themselves. So most of the art that we have from Roman antiquity naturally skews itself towards the middling and upper classes. So yeah, it is frustrating. <laughs> it's rather frustrating sometimes, I admit. But part of what I love about my subject is that it's not like all laid out there for me to look at. It involves a certain amount of detective work. And I have to look in all different kinds of literary sources. And I have to look at, you know, paprological sources. And I look for evidence of, um, you know, those who had jobs in the appearance trades in, in the epigraphy. And, you know, I have to look in a lot of different places. So it does make it very interesting and also very challenging.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know a little bit what you mean. I, I love working with fragments. It's just, yeah, so tantalizing. to yeah. imagine what it could yes. have been? Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Yeah. So, um, I mean, in our society, when we think about Roman clothing, we think about the toga. You know, I mean, we have the mm-hmm. toga parties at mm-hmm. universities and things like that. But, yeah, wh- why do you think the toga... It was so symbolic in, in Rome, you know, you talk about in your book about how it has all this st- symbolic value. Can you explain us a little bit about that?
2: Yeah. Um, you know, the, the toga is what you wear on top of your tunic if you're a citizen and if you're going outside. So togas, you know, they're not attached to themselves at any point at least not that we can fig, not that we know. And so managing a toga, especially a toga of say the early empire when they're really big, very voluminous garments. You know, it's very difficult. They're cumbersome, they're made of wool, so they're hot, they're very expensive because there's lots of material and fabric. In antiquity it was really expensive in a way that it just isn't today. Like the Romans don't have fabric land that you can go and buy, you know, five meters of light flannelette and make yourself a toga. So every piece of clothing in the ancient world is made to order, right? It's it's bespoke clothing, unless it's secondhand, unless there are secondhand clothing marks in Rome. So the, the toga is a sign of um, rank, but it's also a sign of status because you're the kind of man who is able to manage that huge voluminous toga while you're going about your daily business. And there are certain things that you can't do when you're wearing a toga. And one of them is like hurry, right? You can't run anywhere. And in fact, it's slaves that are characterized as the rank that hurry. Slaves are always running from place to place, doing the bidding of others. But the toga wearing male, you know, can walk very um, calmly from place to place because he, he's not under anyone's, he's not anyone's beck and call. He's under his own, you know, sort of steam. And walking slowly is one of the one of the necessary things in order to keep that toga on. So that that's a kind of interesting. Um, I think it's a kind of an interesting side note about the togas that this is why it's one of the reasons it's denied to slaves is that it's just so impractical. Like they just can't they can't wear it and run all over the city of Rome or do manual labor or anything like that. Um, and for that same reason, even citizens of the lower orders who were legally entitled to wear the toga may not have owned one for all those reasons so the expense the maintenance the um the 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 difficulty in assuming a toga and then doing manual labor um so the the toga was probably looked on by the vast majority of men in Rome as like a burden, kind of like, oh, I, kind of like a tie is today, you know, like how men, when they get home from work, I, the first thing they do is take that tie off because it's so uncomfortable. Um, in fact, the Christian author Tertullian has this fantastic piece called On the Pallium, which is a light Greek cloak. Um, as you know and he has a really fantastic sort of excursus on why everyone hates the toga and the main reason is because it's so uncomfortable to wear it's so burdensome um but it's precisely that um, that it's precisely that burden that makes it so important a marker of status right um it you know it's sort of um it it tells the world that you're a a kind of old-fashioned upstanding roman um of the severe sort uh, and you're not going to leave your toga off. It's because it's the respectable thing to do is to wear a toga when you leave the house. And if you don't wear a toga, then heaven forbid, you could be mistaken for a slave and the Romans of the upper classes do, do not want that. So that's one of the things the toga says about them when they assume it is a, they're not a slave and B they, they're they of a sufficient status in order to walk around rome wearing this very burdensome um burdensome piece of clothing um the toga can have various symbols on it in order to indicate where you are in the political hierarchy so magistrates um those holding political office have a border on their toga a wide purple border and it's um one of the current controversies (laughs) raging in roman clothing studies um is the location of that border. So, so some scholars hold that it was on the lower edge of the toga, the curved edge closest to the ground. Um, that's possible. I think that's super impractical because that's the part that gets dirty, right? That's the part that, um, drags in the dirt and gets splashed with mud and, and all the rest of it. And Roman clothing is very expensive to maintain. Like it's hard to keep it clean and the the other problem with laundering your clothing is that it it sort of ruins it. I mean, they don't have fabric softener back in ancient Rome and they use a variety of very abrasive substances to get the dirt out and every time you take your toga in, if it's got a wide purple border on it somewhere, that will fade a little bit every time you do it and then eventually you'll have to get it redyed, which is very expensive. Um, so I think personally the border was probably on the the um the sort of loop that went across the man's chest. I think that's a much more practical um location for the the border on the toga. Um, so yeah, the other thing that the Roman male may have had, possibly, although literary sources don't mention this are toga weights. So you know I guess they sort of would look like loom weights. And they're attached to the bottom hem of your toga to sort of keep it from blowing up and keeping it you know keep it straight and and looking well and there are there's no mention of them in literature, but there there do seem to be toga weights on the toga figures in the arp on the Arepachus in rome so um and and one of the things I would like to do although so far I have been stymied by. The Italian um, uh, um, archaeological authority is. I want to get into the Arapaca's museum and I want to look at the friezes like at eye level. Like right now, they're ten feet above the ground, and it's really hard to pick out, you know, details of clothing. Um, but I think they're toga weights, so that's also kind of interesting. Uh, yeah so the toga is a big um a big symbol of status and rank because it's just it's so hard to wear it it's really expensive and um you know it has a kind of weightiness which is supposed to equal your own personality as a as a Roman senator or a Roman magistrate
0: This episode is brought to you by sax.com At sax.com it's easy to find your new vibe
1: coats now have weights
2: they do that's right yeah they do <laughs> like, yeah, like lining yeah huh. yeah so that's yeah.
1: right. and Perfect. and even skirts in the 50s yep. and 60s yep. they, they all had weights, weights, too, weights yeah. to them yeah yep. <laughs> cool yeah very interesting and um, in your book you also talk about black clothes and sorted clothes so can you tell us a little bit about that um, can you think about some modern pa- parallels about that?
2: Yeah, and it's it was a very frustrating chapter to <laughs> to write because often the the Latin authors say "sordidus," sorted, and it can mean that the man in question is either wearing black and or is in mourning, or that he's in sordid clothing, dirtied or sully clothing. And so it just took me ages to wrestle out all the various, um, you know, tease out all the various little answers to, to this. But so the, the Romans do have black clothing, and they do wear it for mourning. Um, but men don't mourn. So so we have to make a distinction between grief, which you know every Roman must have felt at the death of a loved one, and formal mourning, which women seem to have assumed but men did not assume worn clothing so men wore a black toga and presumably a black tunic the day of the funeral and then after that they assumed their normal clothing. Women wore black clothing um if their husband had died, for instance, they wore black clothing as far as we can tell for one to two years. Um, and I I don't think that there, it, the, the mourning rules were not as complicated as they were in, say, Victorian Britain, where you have to wear this color for this long if it's a husband or a mother and this color for this long if it's a sister and there are various gradations of half mourning. And it's very complicated. Um, so the Roman male does wear black um, as a show of mourning, but only the day of the funeral. And the black wool can be naturally occurring black wool. The Romans also have black dyes they can use um but it's not an everyday interestingly black is not an everyday color as far as we know so if you saw someone in black clothing um you, just like in Victorian England you would know that they had recently suffered a bereavement right They're, that's very obvious sorted clothing is a really fascinating subject um and it's it, i can't quite work out which came first because sorted clothing is a kind of um corollary of mourning So when you are feeling grief, um, as a Roman male, you may also, you may do things like grow your hair and beard out. You may not be wearing black clothing, um, but you may grow your hair and beard out. You may also not pay very close attention to your, your personal appearance. So your clothing might become dirty. Your person might become dirty, Um, And this is because you're so involved in that, in the grief for your loved one, um, uh, that you neglect your personal appearance. However, that kind of appearance is also used as a political protest, which is... on the one hand, so when Cicero was exiled, um, a bunch of his followers decided they were not going to trim their hair or beards until he was recalled. They were not going to wash. They were not going to have their clothing laundered. And so they made a kind of political show of their unkemptness as a political protest. Um, A sordid appearance also comes into play in a Roman court case. So if you, a Roman citizen are on trial for his life, say you've murdered somebody or you've burnt down a temple, um, then the normal thing to do was appear um, as if you're in mourning and your friends and family show up to the court case also arrayed in mourning clothing. So I assume the women wear black, although we're not not—we're not um, told anything. But you, the defendant, and your friends and family all show up like dirty and disheveled. You know, you grow out your hair and your beard. And this is a, a kind of attempt to win sympathy from the jury, right? This is what will happen if you condemn this man to death. Look at his poor family. Look at his little children. Look at the man himself. Look at how abject he is and how sorry he is for his actions, um, I find this fascinating because today in a courtroom, the defendant is always like in a suit and shaven and he has his hair done. And like, it doesn't matter what crime he's committed. He's supposed to present as well as he can. Right. He never shows up unshaven or dirty or um, unkempt. But for the Romans, it was really important. And in fact, if you were on trial and you didn't show up looking sordid, Um, that really could count against you. The jury would think that you were um, being really arrogant and they might condemn you just because they thought you were taking the piss. Um, So sordidness is a really kind of fascinating aspect of Roman appearance, which um, again, really doesn't, I can't quite think of any, um, any modern practice, which a court which sort of falls into line with um the Roman practice of sordid appearance as a political protest or as an appeal to to a jury. And, and of course, modern mourning clothing, that is wearing black for um for a death, formal mourning that is, sort of falls um into dissuade after the 1920s. Although sometimes it's 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 still quite common to wear black to a funeral, I think often, but but we don't go into formal mourning anymore, for sure.
1: Yeah, no, that's that's true. Yeah, or maybe on the day of the funeral. But even so, I've been to several funerals and people don't wear black anymore.
2: No, they don't. You know? And sometimes there's instructions from the deceased, like this is going to be my funeral. I'm having everybody wear pink when I die. So like everybody shows up in the deceased's favorite color. <laughs> so yeah, no, there's definitely no formal mourning for sure.
1: Yeah. So did the Romans have some equivalent to what we would call now the metroman, you know, like the men that do really care about their appearance?
2: Yes, they did. And just like today, um, you know, certainly this is maybe not true of the younger generation, but men of my own age, like, you know, if you pay too much attention to your appearance, like that's kind of suspect, right? Like, you know, and the Romans thought the same thing. So, the you know, for the Romans, the, the male, you know, the, the true Roman man is the one who wears, you know, the undyed clothing, the toga, you know, he's clean and neat, but he's not overly adorned, right? He doesn't wear color, um, for one thing. Um, he's not supposed to wear makeup. He's not supposed to curl his hair or wear um, a certain kind of perfume. Men are supposed to be perfumed in the ancient world as a sign of sort of sophisticated um, sophisticated urbanite. Um, but, you know, there are certain behaviors which which men are not supposed to indulge in because women engage in them. Um, and yet there, there are, again, very tantalizing glimpses in Roman literature of what I would call Roman dandies. So they're, they're often um, ridiculed and censured by Roman authors. Um, And they are, they are men who wear colorful clothing, who curl their hair, um, who wear really complicated concoctions of perfume, um, who like to wear silken clothing, which is again, something which should be reserved for women. Um, And in the past, um these the, and in fact by the Roman authors of the time they were condemned as um Canida, which which is it, it's a it's a kind of a category which looks like a, proto-homosexual male identity, but it's not really because Kennedy are the, the thing that sets Kennedy apart are that they've totally given up trying to appear as a man. So they wear colored clothing and they um they curl their hair and they wear makeup. Um and also they have no sexual self-control. So Kennedy Yes, they like to have sex with men. Most Roman men like to have sex with men, um, but they also like to have sex with women. They'll just have sex with anybody. They don't care. They have no sexual self-control. Um, and so the dandy in Roman literature is often poked fun at and, and um, called a canitis. Um, But I think the reality must have been a little more complicated than that because plenty of men in the sources who are, who are said to be wearing silk and colorful clothing and expensive concoctions of scent are in fact, not can D they're um, very firmly Roman um, sort of good old fashioned Roman, um, Roman men. And so I suspect that, you know, for a man to show an, a, a, you know, an overt interest in his own appearance in antiquity was just held to be a little suspect, the same as it is today, at least among men of a certain age. So, yeah, there are definitely metrosexuals in antiquity. And, you know, through the ages, they've been called various things. So in in um, early modern, sorry, in 18th century and 19th century England, they're called dandies. And we call them um, we call them metrosexuals. I don't I'm not sure that word dandy is still current. I guess it it is sometimes, but mostly we call them metrosexual. So yeah, there are definitely men in antiquity who are very, very interested in their own appearance. And they're very interested in their own appearance, you know, because they, um, you know, they have a love of fine clothing and they, um, they have a love of personal adornment. Mm, thank you. Very
1: interesting. Yeah. So I mean the topic has come up already several times about how men didn't go for the extravagant clothing other than this particular group. Um, why do you think that's that's the case? You know, but because it seems to be the case nowadays too, no? Mm-hmm.
2: Like, yeah, I I honestly Don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's just, I mean, okay. If I was, if I was being um, really cynical, I would say, oh, it's misogyny. So, you know, in the ancient world, you don't want to appear like a slave. That's sort of priority number one, but you also don't want to appear like a woman because women in the ancient world are like powerless and they're weak And, you know, they're overly emotional and they can't hold political office. And they're like, you know, they're they're very much supposed to be anyway, very passive beings. Um, And, you know, I think today fashion for certainly men of younger generations is changing a little bit, um, but it's still not at all common to walk down a street in Canada, say, and see men in skirts. That's just the skirt is very firmly a female type of clothing, even though every once in a while a modern designer tries to reinsert the skirt as a kind of male, um, item of fashion. Um, and it just has never caught on. And I think it's because skirts are just so associated with women and men don't want to take them up because I think essentially we still live in a misogynist world. So I, I really think that, Um, You know, women are perfectly it's perfectly okay for women to wear trousers and suits and ties, but it's definitely not okay for men to wear skirts or shawls or anything that will make them look like a woman, even slightly like a woman. So that's my very cynical answer is that it's it's misogyny. (laughs)
1: Yeah,
2: sure. I mean, when when you call a man effeminate,
0: it's, As it's an, an, insult, an insult, you're calling
2: him womanly. So, you know, there it it's, is.
1: Yeah. Yes, yes. It's bad to be a woman. <laughs> it's bad to be a woman.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> and and I have just the last question that I thought when uh, at the beginning of this interview, you talked about Hollywood movies. And I'm like, yeah, there's lots of Hollywood movies showing Roman clothing, or supposedly Roman clothing. How truthful are they? Can are they? I'm I'm sure it varies, but can you talk a little bit? Yeah, about Yeah, they're
2: mostly like I tell my daughters. I say they always get the clothing wrong. Like they always do. It's it's kind of like amazing. You can really set your watch by the fact that they get the clothing wrong. <laughs> so um so so in Gladiator um which is came out in 2000 which is a movie I really love. Um, it, you know, it's it's a very beautiful movie. It's very evocative, but the clothing is not Roman. The clothing comes actually from the late 19th century's um, view of Roman clothing. So the the painter Lawrence Alma Tadema, or is it Alma Tadema? Um, he painted a series of Roman, Rome sort of so called Roman paintings, and in it. Um, he sort of came up with his own vision of Roman clothing. And that's the clothing you see in Gladiator is Alma Tadema's um, vision. Um, so yeah, it's not often very accurate. Al- although I do tell my students that the, the the movie, which is the most visually true to, um, to ancient Rome, is probably Fellini's Satyricon. Which is not a popular movie with my students because it's it's very episodic and, you know, the music is very discordant. Um, But visually speaking, it's like spot on. It's very, very accurate. It's really good. So, yeah, so it's mostly not not very (laughs) – the clothing is mostly not very accurate at all. And, you know, as a clothing historian, I'll always be looking to see what they do with the clothing, um, in, in the Roman movie or the ancient Greek movie, but I, I mean I suppose really it's more important that the clothing helps to evoke the ancient world, right? Whatever the vision of the director or screenwriter um, has in mind for the ancient world is important that the clothing evoke that vision. So I guess it's more important that the clothing be, you know, part of the, the visual imagery of the movie rather than being strictly accurate. That's what I tell myself
1: anyway. (laughs) (laughs) To just burst my bubble thinking that (laughs) (laughs) Elizabeth Taylor's Cleopatra is not really how Cleopatra looked like.
2: I love that movie so much. And I have discussions with my fashion students because to me it's really fascinating how in historical dramas like the Cleopatra movies, for instance, um, even though it's supposed to be set in ancient Egypt, you can always tell which deck in which decade the film was made so liz taylor's cleopatra looks very 60s and claudette colbert's cleopatra looks very 30s um and Lindsay marshall's cleopatra from hbo's rome looks very early 2000s and it just it fascinates me how tr- try as the costumer might the decade in which the film is made sort of seeps through all you know every all the good intentions of making the clothes historically accurate, you can still tell in which decade the film was produced. It's really fascinating.
1: Mm, Yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. That was a a fascinating conversation. Thank you very much for.
2: Thank you so much for having you. It was so fun. I love talking about Roman clothing.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Well, maybe we can keep talking at the separate occasion then. (laughs) Yeah. I'd love that. Well, well, thank you very much, Kelly and. Good night. (laughs) Okay. Thanks, Rhea.
2: Good night.